0: All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Making the Argument. We've got a special guest today, and we're going to be discussing a variety of topics. But it really centers around a couple of core ideas, and one of them is this idea of the woke mind virus, right? And we've we've heard people from James Lindsay to Elon Musk talk about this, and how do you properly define it? And, and a lot of that is, is somewhat difficult. But essentially what we're dealing with is, is something of a combination of critical theory, Marxism, postmodernism, deconstructionism, and, and a couple of other isms. But what that all translates into is this ideology that seems to believe that the entire world is broken down into oppressor or oppressed, that any sort of disparities that you see within the world can be explained by this, this very narrow view of reality and the world as we see it. And, and probably the most frustrating thing people have, have witnessed about this or recognized about this is the idea that when somebody becomes immersed in this ideology, it almost becomes impossible to talk to them. When you, when you present facts or evidence or anything that, that contradicts that worldview, it's almost as if they respond like you questioning them is proof of the very thing that they're trying to tell you exists. And what that means is that it creates this condition where all of a sudden their beliefs, their ideas are completely unchallenging. You can't challenge them at all because the moment you do, you're a racist, you're a sexist, you're a bigot, you're a homophobe, a transphobe, whatever it is, they shut down the debate and that's it. And it's almost like this cultish devotion to a particular ideology. And what we're going to do today is we're going to talk with, with Jonam Ross, who, has done some interesting work, has some very interesting personal experience with this, and and now really puts a lot of his work into helping people kind of escape from ideologies, from uh, cult-like organizations or behaviors. Because let's face it, one of the biggest problems that we have when we talk about – you know, some of the ideologies that we feel like has the West under assault right now is we've done a pretty good job of identifying, right? We can we can point to all the isms, we can point to all the theories uh which have people captured. And we can we can teach people how to avoid them, right? Like, okay, don't do this, don't do this, beware of this. But what happens when somebody has become so immersed in it where now all of a sudden it's almost like you are trying to drag them out of a cult. And Jonah's here to talk about uh that with us today. Jonam, thank you very much for coming all the way from the UK. Thank you for having me, Nick. Great to be here. Great. Well, hey, John, give us a little bit about because again, you've done some interesting work. Give us, give us some of your um, the the work that you do and why you got into it in the first place. What what was the what was the thing that really drove you to dive into this and really consider it and think about it?
1: Yeah, and I, I I was raised in a uh, a fundamentalist religious group. I won't name any groups here because I don't want to land you with a lawsuit or anything. But a, a fundamentalist group and. <laughs> First impressions and everything, you know, um, and the the process of that, I, I'd be able, I was able to experience firsthand the uh, very very strong coercive mechanisms that take place in these kinds of organisations, and inevitably, in my kind of early twenties, I started to drift away from that as it stopped making sense to me, and I was always fascinated with uh, psychology and behaviour and. was was already researching that from the point of view of wanting to be a better Christian, wanting to be a better proselytizer and uh, a a better recruiter for the organization I was in. So the the seeds were already there to understand how the mind works. And my first client has always been myself. Uh, So I would always uh, apply the new things I learned to my own experiences, to my own things I needed to work on. And so that progressed into the field of hypnotherapy, and from there into uh, behavioral profiling, behavioral engineering i 've done a lot of work with chase Hughes, who's also in virginia um who's a, a dear friend i 've narrated audiobooks for him and this This fascination with how people can push the push the envelope of what 's possible with influence and the more I learned about that, the more I saw how these these patterns were taking place on uh, individual levels, like in, say, a narcissistic relationship, I describe those as being a cult of two people, uh, because they work exactly the same as a cult of a few thousand or hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, the mechanisms, the um, the results that it has on the, the psyche of the people who are involved in it, they're they're almost identical, just coming from a slightly different scale, or a very different scale, slightly different place. So, so let,
0: let's, go let's, ahead. let me, let me ask you one thing here real quick. So when you were, so for instance, and again, without naming names or anything like that, like how, how early were you introduced to the organization that, that you were, um, subjected to originally. Yeah. Uh,
1: I was born in was it
0: something you grew up in or yeah. Born in, um, born into it. Okay. Okay. And, and, and the, so the, the process, so again, as, as you were getting a little bit older and whatnot, because one of the things that you talked about there that I think is interesting is, is kind of the coercive nature. Now, do you, mean, do you mean like a physical coercion? Do you mean more of like an intellectual or emotional coercion, a combination? Like what, what, what exactly does that mean?
1: Uh, not physical in, in this case. And how m- most of the coercion, I would say most in the modern world, it's, it's non-physical these days. Uh, it's psychological. It's emotional. And if you think back to any any decently functioning, tyrannical regime, as much as they can be called decent, um, people like the Nazis or the Soviets, you can't afford to put a guard with a gun in every single house, policing every single person and every single family. You just can't do it. What you have to do is you have to indoctrinate the members of that ideology to be self-policing and to be policing each other. So then, you know, you have the secret police services who are... Was it one in four or one in five people were were spying on their family and uh, neighbors? So it's the the internalized mechanisms of control where you're uh, emotionally blackmailing yourself, where you're having thought stopping mechanisms, where there are certain questions which just are not allowed. There are certain websites you may not be able to uh, look at uh, because they they talk about things which might be considered apostasy or heresy. And um, these these internalized mechanisms keep people uh, self-policing, even if there's no one else there. And so in, in this kind of religious or, or kind of quasi religious context, it's um, it's framed as being your conscience. And so that part of you that's that's been kind of planted in there is it's being labeled as your conscience. So you should listen to that. And the part of you that's in there saying, hey, I'm seeing red flags here. Uh, that's being labeled as your inherent sinfulness or your white privilege or whatever it might be. So, so there's a very clever labeling and dividing out that takes place. And the, the problem that people often find the misconception when people come to me is that, that they think that if you got rid of the cult that they came from on the outside, that their life would get better i say what what do you think would make your life better They say, oh, i just want that church to disappear and the problem is if i were to wave some magic wand and make that group disappear off the face of the planet um, they would still have no confidence person they would still have uh, no ability to connect authentically with other people their relationships would be a shamble their health their finances their vision for the future would be non-existent all of those problems would still be there because the the mechanisms had internalized them. So we get very focused on things on the outside when in fact, the the solution as perhaps cliche as it sounds is to actually uh, uproot these internalized indoctrination mechanisms.
0: So let me ask you a question because you, you make a distinction between you make a distinction between kind of religion and like cult like religion. Yes. Or or you don't put all religion into like a, a cult framework yeah okay so, so so there there's an important distinction and so when when you look at um when when you look at like we'll say tactics or strategies with respect to a certain cult like you gave us a, a, a like I, I think an important insight there where you know again it's i think we understand that it's a self policing again you can't have some you know police force or intelligence force which is constantly you know sitting there guarding everybody and what they think and say and believe but you, you can implant this idea that this this is the correct way to think. And anytime you're thinking in, in connection with this, that's appropriate and correct and moral. And anytime, again, that, that internal voice or whatever it is, that, that sense of conscience, which says, well, okay, but what about this, that they're, they're taught to believe that that is again, whatever you said, sinful or white privilege, or maybe internalizing your oppression or, or whatever it is. So how do you, how do you see, um, when, when you're when you're identifying something that you consider to be cult-like, like how do you distinguish between an organization which might just you know deeply believe in certain things or have certain metaphysical beliefs or whatever versus one that truly is more cult-like? How do you distinguish?
1: Yeah, great question. There's a guy called uh, Stephen Hassan who's uh, very famous in the cult deprogramming circuit, and he came up with the byte model which uh, which talks about uh, behavior information, thoughts and emotions. So a group that exercises uh, high levels of control over those four areas of your life, where there are either s- super strong incentives to conform, or usually the uh, strong punishments for nonconformity, that's where you're you're starting to get into cult territory. So the 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 intense Sort of puppeteering of people and the the ways where you don't have the option to say no, where you'll either be shouted down or where by saying certain things or doing certain things you you might be subject to ostracization, ostracism, and uh, the humiliation, loss of contacts, loss of uh, freedom, loss of opportunities. Is is that that strong? stick element of the carrot and the stick how cults usually work is they tempt you in with the carrot and then they keep you in with the stick and then move the carrot off into the future to this um unspecified point where all of your dreams will come true in the meantime if you disobey, then you're in serious trouble
0: i see and and the the part that you mentioned where it was the idea that a lot of people seem to have so even if they have some indication that they're a member because obviously if somebody is, you know, seeking help or talking to somebody about it, they have some indication that something's off. Yeah. But you're you're saying that oftentimes what they believe is that well if only the organization would go away that would solve all my problems and and in reality, you're saying that um, essentially the the programming that has already taken place even if it hasn't prevented them from recognizing that something's wrong is still, still has a certain level of control over their behavior to where even if that one organization went away, they would almost, would they seek out another one or what, what would be, what would be the result? Yeah.
1: Yeah. These groups often create a power vacuum when they are uh, taken out of someone's life. So if, if someone leaves a highly controlling uh, childhood home, for instance, they'll often get into similar, um, uh, romantic relationships which resemble the control and the abuse they experienced growing up, and similar work situations or similar religious groups. that We look for what we are familiar with. Um, the, the thing with the brain is that it's not designed to make you happy, it's designed to keep you alive. So if you spent the first two decades of your life knowing that you can survive in an authoritarian or in an abusive or toxic home environment or having this level of um, reduced freedoms, then the idea of having more freedoms or the idea of not having those unpleasant things around you, consciously, it makes perfect sense. We know it's better. But because we've spent so long being conditioned into feeling that this is normal, then that's what we will gravitate back into. And the some of it is deliberate and intentional programming. For instance, in a narcissistic relationship, they do a lot of work to undermine the confidence and to uh, isolate the uh, the person that they're with. So it creates this dependency. But uh, a lot of it does boil down to this very simple matter of your own sense of deservedness. Uh, a very common mistake that people make that we have to be careful of is thinking that if we know better, that we will do better. And in some cases, that is true in some cases. But almost everyone I've ever spoken to who was in a a toxic organization or a toxic relationship, they saw the red flags early on, or they had a gut feeling that something wasn't right, or the person or the group treated them a certain way, and they were like, hmm, this isn't quite right. But then they suppressed it, and they ignored it, and they talked themselves into it. And uh, this idea of, well, don't be rude, or Give them the benefit of the doubt or see the good in people. And, well, you're a nice person. A nice person extends, you know, mercy or you turn the other cheek. Well, whatever argument we use to then become the co-conspirators in our own uh, downfall. So uh, it's not always about knowing the signs to look out for. It's that if you don't think you deserve better, then you can see all the red flags in the world. You'll, you'll still invite it in. So a lot does come down yeah, was, to the sense of worthiness and also the 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 permission to establish boundaries, to say no, and to actually make a stand for yourself.
0: So it's an I remember uh, Theodore Dalrymple, you know, Doctor. Uh, I think it's Anthony um, Anthony Daniels, um, who when he re- wrote his book Life at the Bottom, which kind of a, a series of essays that he had written over time as a as a doctor and I believe a psych, I want to say a psychologist working within the British National Health System and the. Um, in the prison system, he used to talk to women who were repeat victims of domestic violence. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions he would ask them is, if your boyfriend walked in the room right now, how long would it take for me to know he was a bad guy? And she said, oh, you would know instantly. And he would always say, well, okay, then presumably you had some idea that this this was a bad guy. Yeah. And, and, he, and he found, kind of going back to your point about either they had grown up in an environment where domestic violence or some sort of abuse, um not always physical, sometimes just emotional or mental, was the norm. Um so sometimes it was familiarity. Other times he said that it was actually just seeking out some element of danger and excitement in, in what they perceived to be an otherwise boring, boring life. And it was just fascinating to see um kind of the, the, the mental state, because you obviously think, well, wait a second. If, if you know, this is a bad guy and you've been a victim of this before and you can properly identify what's going to happen in the future, why would you run into it? And it was, it was almost a compulsion that had been created. Um, I, again, either seeking familiarity or, or, um, excitement or, you know, maybe in your case, the idea of, well, this is just what I deserve. This is just the way it is. And, and one of the most fascinating things he shared at one point was he was talking to somebody who had murdered someone and he described the act and he said, the knife went in. And it was Mm -hmm. this idea that the guy had no, the guy had no, um, agency over his own actions. It was just something that happened. And, and what would you, I mean, as you look at the various, maybe not motivations, but conditions which creates someone either finding themselves in in one of these types of organizations or relationships. Do do you see a a combination of maybe the familiarity excitement or, or um, just a a complete, a convenient lack of belief in one's own agency or like, is there one motivation that you see that is a little bit more common than others that that maybe predisposes someone to be especially vulnerable to this?
1: Mm, Yeah. Uh, So there are a couple of things I'd mention. One is, um, one of the most powerful videos that I've shared with people from YouTube is one of yours, Nick, where you talk about um, uh, the lessons you've learned raising daughters. I, I don't have daughters. I have a niece. Uh, but I've shared that with people and especially my single guy friends, also guys without daughters for the most part, because there's, there's a phrase you, you shared in there about how um, as a father, you need to tell your daughter you love her. Because if you don't, then someone who doesn't will, and she'll believe him, and uh, that's an absolute game changer for for anyone who hears it. As as a single guy, it changes the way you see women. As a, as a, a woman, it gives you the sense of uh, really being seen. I've found, and it's, it's really touched a lot of people who I've shared it with. And I think that that, if you extend it beyond fathers and daughters, but just this this sense of look, if there's this this Uh, vulnerability that's created in childhood, the sense of not being loved or approved of or needing to do certain things in order to meet some kind of expectations, that makes people very vulnerable when they they don't have that core of not not self-esteem in the sense of unconditionally thinking you're the bee's knees and that you don't need to strive or improve (laughs) to be better, Uh, but but that self-acceptance of knowing that, you know, look, you're, you're essentially all right. You're a a good person. And, you know, you belong here. You're important. Your life is important. Your decisions matter. Um, these things, which these sort of, um, nihilistic postmodern ideologies erode or, or try to dismantle, um, when you have that, that vulnerability and that, that sort of vacuum inside, then you'll be looking for ways to create the validation that you needed as a kid. So, so that's one thing. And the other aspect, as well as that uh, emotional vulnerability is the idea of agency or authority. Um, the Milgram experiment is fascinating. If you, are you familiar with that one with the electric shocks? No so no. eerie it's creepy but check, check it out online cuz they, they have the videos on the, on YouTube
0: good ranchers right now for a limited time in January as an effort to kick off 2024 in the best way possible is offering you more free stuff. So if you go to Good Ranchers and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, they're going to give you a year of free chicken with every single order. So they're going to give you two pounds of Good Ranchers chicken. I need you to understand something of a Good Ranchers chicken, All right? This isn't the sort of chicken that you just walk into any grocery store and, and buy, right? This is chicken that actually did get to go out there and live the sort of organic lifestyle you think it lived when it says organic on the side. Keep in mind, that the rules for organic are actually pretty loose like i think if you show a if you show a chicken a picture of of a hill that counts as organic now and you only feed them certain feed okay but if you actually want the sort of chicken that is living the sort of life where they get to go up there and scratch up bugs and get some protein in there along with the whatever kibble they're being fed you want you want good ranchers chicken because that is a chicken that has lived a full chicken life and now is just going to be more delicious as a result. This is guilt-free chicken, because when you eat this chicken, you know it didn't just survive some horrible existence, you know, cooped up in a cage somewhere. This is the chicken that got to see the sunlight and eat some bugs. It enjoyed its time here, and now it's serving an even greater purpose of feeding you and your family, thanks to Good Ranchers. So, use promo code Nick, go on GoodRanchers.com, promo code Nick, sign up for one of the subscriptions in January, and they're going to give you free chicken for the first year of that subscription on every order. This is like almost $200 off. Like, that's essentially what this $189. Is. $189. If you subscribe in January. And with the inflation coming in 2024, that's like a million dollars in savings. That's- <laughs> I
1: can't believe that you go into this and give backstories on these
0: animals we're going to eat.
1: But uh, the experiment was, well, Stanley Milgram was a guy who... His parents were survivors of the, um, the, the Holocaust. And he was watching the Nuremberg trials with close interest, as you'd imagine. And this phrase kept coming up. And that was, uh, we were just following orders. I was just following orders. And all of these war criminals were saying that. And he's like, well, surely there can't be this many psychopaths in one place. Surely not. Or like, what, what is this? How is this working? So he, he put together this experiment to see when you take a, a, a section of normal people from the population, can you use perceived authority to get them to commit murder? Obviously, they weren't actually murdering people. But the experiment was that there was a, um, a, a sort of teacher learner experiment being run. So you, so you would go in. And you'd meet the person who was going to be the student or, you know, you kind of draw, draw straws to see who was going to be it. But they were always the student. They would then go into a separate room where they get all strapped up with these electrodes and everything. You go into a separate room where you have a switchboard with all of these uh, little notches of increasing voltage. And your job was to read out questions to them. And then if they got the answer wrong, you would administer an electric shock and then increase the voltage for the next one. And, uh, oh my
0: gosh. yeah,
1: yeah. Have people signed up for this? <laughs> yeah. Well, they didn't, the, the electric shocks weren't real. The, um, oh. the, the, the actual experiment was being done on the person who was the teacher. Oh, so you would go in there and the, the only person in the room who's genuine is you. And you're in there, you're in this room with the switchboard and there's a guy in a lab coat with a, uh, a clipboard there. And he's not talking a lot, but if you start to slow down or if you show some hesitation he'll just say something really simple like uh, the experiment requires you to proceed like no influence but you you could walk out at any time so the estimate was that like less than five percent of people would actually go through with this because as you would as they get it wrong it would get louder their screams would get louder you'd hear it on this intercom and uh, they were clearly really suffering and it would eventually reach the point where you'd ask a question, they'd be silent, you'd say, what do I do? And they'd say a non-answer is a failed answer, so you shock them and you'd go all the way up to beyond it being lethal. In, in all of the places where this has been replicated, it was, it's like around 90% of people go beyond oh the level where you would kill people, where you would kill someone. So, So, what that experiment proves is that one hundred percent of the people tested are able to become a torturer um just by administering the shocks, and a large section of that group would actually go to the point of becoming murderers sometimes under protest, but they would still do it purely by the presence of not even actual authority, just perceived authority because yeah. a guy looked right had a web had a um you know, a a lab coat and a clipboard. So, so the power of perceived authority is terrifying, right?
0: Well, and, and, and it goes to this again, this whole idea of, of agency. There was a um, Jordan Peterson talks about the book ordinary men. And it was, it was part of the process. I think it was for the Isotzen group, but I'm not sure, but it it was, it was one of the, it was one of the, um, one of the groups that the Nazis used that would go in after the, the main frontline troops and the Wehrmacht and they would just go in and they'd collect people up and they'd, they'd murder them and um it was amazing cuz it it essentially became a voluntary unit and they didn't want psychopaths they they wanted they wanted people that were the sort of people that came home and had kids and families and and because ultimately over time they were easier to control than the the sociopath or the psychopath uh all they had to do was adjust the moral code in such a way that killing the innocent person was the the morally justified thing to do and and it could be as simple as well, this is a difficult task, and I don't want to leave my friends to have to to do it, or I don't want to fail to do my duty. And so, it's it's just amazing how, on one level, perceived authority can be sufficient. On another level, it's a question of, and I and I think the perceived authority, what it does is it gives someone essentially freedom from their actions. Mm-hmm. It's not my fault. Yeah. And then on the other side, with the shifting of of the moral component, it's now the idea that me doing this is in some way a noble act. Mm-hmm. Um, e- even if it violates any precept that they might've grown up with or that their instincts might tell them or, or whatever else it is. Um, but it, yeah, it's, I think it's a great point that we we all like to imagine ourselves as the people that would have, you know, hid Anne Frank or or stood up to the Nazis when in, when in reality, um, unless you've really mentally prepared yourself to be able to stand up to that kind of, of, whether it be social pressure or a threat of coercion and violence or just loss of comfort and mm-hmm. status um it, it's but i've never heard of that study that's oh yeah. my gosh that's it's, a little bit wild. terrifying
1: uh, and it produced a phrase so was, called the agentic state or the agentic shift and what that is is that that's the state of followership where you're you're following either a direct order in that kind of situation but even that this extends out into Things like group dynamics or the 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 tribe mind, the hive mind. There's another experiment called the bystander effect, where uh, there, there are lots of these videos online. Have, where, where basically, even if you know the right thing to do, if you're surrounded by other people doing something different, you are far less likely to do the right thing, even though it's flaming obvious to you. Um, yeah. So, so this the, the mistake we make is thinking that we're rational creatures and we are rational creatures about maybe five percent something like that a a tiny amount of us is rational but most of our decisions are being made emotionally they're being made instinctively and uh, you know if if you're walking down the street and you see someone lying on the floor and they look kind of in a bad way but you look around and there are hundreds of other people just walking past them you are highly unlikely to go and help them even though you're a kind person even though you're a compassionate person if you see hundreds of other people avoiding that person on the floor you you can see this in the if you look up the bystander effect online you see this happen what's fascinating well, is- let
0: me ask you a question on that what what do you so when, when we talk about you know heuristics or the mental shortcuts that we mm-hmm. we all make, so all of us operate off of imperfect information before we make a decision, and so we rely on our experience and and to some degree critical thinking or rationality. W- what do you say to the maybe the rebuttal which says, "Okay, yeah, sure," um, a, a lot of people will uh, um, assume that if nobody else is doing something, it's none of their business. Mm-hmm. But some people could be looking at it and say, well, if nobody else is doing this, either maybe there's a good reason for it. Maybe this person presents a threat or maybe this um, you know, person is in, in dangerous in some other way that I don't know about it. And if nobody else is doing something, maybe there's a good reason for it. Like, what, what's the, Are there controlling factors to kind of differentiate between those things or, or those, those maybe competing concerns which are more rational?
1: I think the… That's the rationale behind the actual instinct itself, because it's a safe bet like, humans are mammals, and so if, if if a member of a mammalian herd, let's say, sees the other, you know, deer or whatever, like their ears prick up and they start running away, the, the chances are you should probably start running away too. Like, it's hardwired <laughs> no. into us. And so, so when, when you look around and you, and you see a certain stimulus, you're drawn towards a certain response, and yet everyone else around you who also has the same instincts is acting differently, our assumption is that, well, maybe they know something I don't. And so we will, we will tend to do that. It's not everyone and it's not in all circumstances, but that's like, that's the default. That's the autopilot. And to actually break the autopilot it tends to take a lot of willpower and usually good reasons to do it.
0: So, so to that point, um, you know, identifying or developing the willpower to kind of break away from, again, that, that, um, oppressive organization relationship, whatever it is, right. That, that, that environment, what do you think when when you have someone that's been immersed in it Mm. and they, again, they, they have enough self-awareness. Well, let me ask you this first, does it require enough self-awareness to even recognize that there might be a problem, or can can someone um, can someone from the outside convince somebody that hey, you're 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 involved in something that is again cult like or is you know um, emotionally and, and mentally you know abusive and capturing? Like, is it does it almost require them to have some self awareness that they're in that situation in order to even be able to get the appropriate help to pull them out or you know can can someone maybe with you know experience and understanding um plant that seed to to get them to that point
1: yeah yeah that's one of the most um popular questions i've been asked in the past and the 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 sad and the difficult thing is that if someone has really bought something hook line and sinker getting them out of it uh is is difficult some would even argue it's unethical because you're um sort of assaulting their their freedom of choice somehow it, it gets ethically creative if you're trying to get someone to make different life choices but the the real answer to the question is that the way out of a, a, a cult like ideology which I would describe the sort of woke mindset as um the way out of it is the same as the way into it. And the way that cult recruiters work is by what we call the piecemeal wedge method. They don't come and knock on your door or stand in the airport and say, "Hey, do you want to come and uh, join our organisation where you'll shave all your hair off, lose all your belongings, and uh, be completely estranged from everything you know and love?" Well, that's not the sales pitch. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, hey, yeah. just you know, just, just do, do this little thing, just sign this petition, take this little daffodil. You know, it's, it's these these small incremental things where gradually that compliance is escalated. And then there are principles like the uh, commitment and consistency principle, where if, you, if you've if you already started down a certain path, whether it's the sunken, fo- sunken costs fallacy or just this idea of, well, I'm the kind of person who is nice to these people. Yeah, I'll, I'll go to their, uh, their church service. Yeah, I'll, I'll go to that little rally they've got going on. Yeah, why not? Of course. Well, it would be rude not to and so gradually slowly sure. like that boiling the frog um metaphor which is horrific um that's how it happens it doesn't happen overnight or in one big event and uh, most commonly when people are in inside of an ideological structure like that it has its own immune system and uh, and that is the defense mechanism where it's like oh you're you're saying that that means you're a turf or you're a um yeah you know, you're, 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 patriarchal or you're sh- showing, uh, showing exclusionary privileges.
0: Showing pri- Exactly.
1: Yeah. And so, so there are these uh, little, uh, go to retorts that, that eliminate the need for further thought. So the, uh, I have a gotcha. whole framework that I, I put together on, uh, on how to, how to go through. I'm happy to share that. If it, if it would be helpful. Um,
0: well, yeah, let's, yeah. sorry, go ahead.
1: But, but the, um,
0: well, I was going to say, let, let's, let's kind of look into, let's kind of look into this whole idea. Cause you, you, again, we, we kind of led off with the woke mind virus and, yeah. uh, and I wanted to go, I wanted to go through some of that background and kind of laying the groundwork to understand, you know, what's going on and, and how these, again, how certain ideologies can, can claim a certain degree of intellectual, emotional capture. Mm. Um, when I, when I look at what's going on in, in the West right now, it, it's, uh, it is insane to me how quickly it, it seems to ha- have taken place, and and the, the more I the more I looked into it, the more I recognized that okay, this didn't happen overnight. This this was this was a long. I mean, if we're talking about like Gramsci and we talk about the long march through the institutions, and and essentially coming up with a a counterculture to the one that is predominated in the West. And if and if I had to if I had to describe the one that I think generally characterizes the West, and, and this is not to say it's been everywhere equally embraced, um, or, or whatnot, but there's been a certain degree of, of dedication toward freedom of inquiry. Um, the idea of, uh, some, some concept of individual liberty and agency responsibility for one's own actions, um, kind of a, a, uh, a rational point or, or a, um, a logical, uh, the laws of logic, law of non-contradiction, law of identity, law of excluded middle, the idea that we can use that, that the universe does have something of an order to it and that we can use tools in order to, you know, make accurate predictions about how physical reality is going to operate. And then that was kind of buttressed and next to, I would say a religious belief that lended itself toward the concept of objective truth and objective morality. So, along with that was the idea that because human beings are created in the image of God, they have inherent worth and value Um, because the universe is orderly. We have mechanisms that we can use to come to, you know, rational logical decisions about behaviors Uh, because there is such thing as objective morality. And that, that generally surrounds the idea of humans having inherent worth that leads itself to, You know property rights and um, you know prohibitions against certain behaviors that would cause harm to another human being, whether it be you know their themselves or their um, or their property, right? And so this was kind of the framework that I think, in in large ways, has has somewhat defined the West. And again, that's that's not to disregard that there was you know very predominant pagan cultures before kind of the the dominance of Christianity, Um, but still that that. That overall commitment, freedom of inquiry, you know, whatnot. And now all of a sudden within a relatively short period of time, and I guess what's so confusing to me is that I remember the fall of the Berlin Wall. Mm. So I remember going to elementary school with the Soviet Union being the big threat. And and what's interesting is that these were two Western ideas at at war with one another, one being the idea of, of Marxism. The other being more associated with the idea of individual liberty, self determination, and free markets. And when, when the Berlin Wall fell and when the Soviet Union began to dissolve, it, it was almost as if in all of our minds, it's like, oh, well, we have our answer, right? Now, most of us, uh, many of us in the West, I don't think we're, we're horribly confused by it, but we, we had our answer. And, and now here we are. Not that long ago, I think the Berlin Wall fell and the Soviet Union dis dissolved. Um, you know, early early nineties, I think like ninety one is when the Soviet Union um, essentially ceased to exist. And and here we are in twenty twenty three. And and if I were to go onto a college campus in the West right now, I, I mean, th- according to them, the bad guys won. Mm. And and. And it's not just classical Marxism, right? It is it is this idea of, I think, what I see is a lot of the Frankfurt School and critical theory and, and the idea of oppressor and oppressed and inequities in society are all a result of these things. So here's what I want to ask. If the West, theoretically, won the Cold War against Marxism, if the ideas of individual liberty and self-determination and... Uh, you could even argue, to some degree, religious beliefs, since Soviet Union was was very dedicated to um, atheism. If all those things essentially won out, and and we were able to prove on some level not just the the military, uh, you know, prominence, but but the economic pro- the economic prominence, the the quality of life, like all of these things that we use as kind of measurements to to gauge whether or not a a country is is well functioning or a society is well functioning. How in the hell is it now? How is it hell that now that all of a sudden so many people are captured by this idea that again somehow the bad guys won? I think it's it is not
1: something that's happened by accident. I don't think that the fall of the Berlin Wall was the fall of the. Um, Marxist agenda let's say i don't i don't even think it's a conspiracy theoristy thing to say because so much of it is overtly stated there are people and uh, groups and organizations that outwardly and and very proudly express their their intention to undermine and to um uh, to take over the west in in various forms from various angles and so anyone with uh, a background in things, things like the military or psychological warfare or, or you know, special operations force, like uh, you, you know, how psychological warfare works and it's, uh, it's by operating by, with, and through indigenous populations. And by, by, if, if you, if you can't send a physical force of tens of thousands of soldiers to go and to kinetically take over a place, then what do you do? You, you send a small group of people, to go and then take over the hearts and minds and start to get people to do uh, things in alignment with your objective as if it's their own idea for their own original reasons that's um that's well documented that's overtly stated as a plan in various um uh, in, in various documentation and it's it's time tested thousands of years so i i would say that that's that's a large part of it now that that That's one side of it, that's the seed. And then the other question is, well, the grounds that the seed's being planted in, what's making an objectively bad idea take? And there are a couple of things which we alluded to earlier, which is that um, one, one is the herd mindset and the, the bystander effect. Something that the left and especially the far left does uh, t- to its advantage for better or worse is that they stick together as a group, even if they're wrong. So, so you you might have a, a thousand people over here who are wrong, but they're all chanting the same things. They've got the right cadence, and they're all they're all like marching in sync with each other, and it's all very very um, coherent. It's coherently wrong, and yet it's coherent. That versus this kind of scattered. Like questioning, reasonable yeah. kind of like, oh, well, you know, are are we the good guys? Are we the bad guys? Versus these thousands <laughs> of people saying, approach. saying we're the good guys and you're the bad guys. Whereas you know, the more rational and and uh, introspective people, who are, you know, good people, who will say, like, well, am I the bad guy? Were my ancestors the bad guys? Gosh, you know, that's a that's a worthy thing to consider. Like, uh, which one of those is more attractive? Which one is more persuasive? So, so that that herd mentality is uh, is very prominent, and like I said earlier, it's built into us on an instinctive level. If there's a large group of people over here, that they've probably got the right idea. The, the sad thing is that it's wrong, and the, the other thing is the the agentic state we mentioned earlier, where you have authority figures telling you things, and that heuristic of well, the person in the in the white coat or the person with the correctly shaved and dyed hair, hair hairstyle is telling me such and such a thing. So maybe, you know, maybe they know better than me. So it's the outsourcing of responsibility for thought and decisions.
0: That was I remember when I was um, when I was still in Army Special Forces, and as you mentioned before, we we operated by through and with the local population. We were we were very much an unconventional warfare and counterinsurgency force, and so we operated under the mindset of we either were the insurgents or we were fighting the insurgents. And and you're right, we didn't have a 12 man ODA. No matter how well trained you are, and no matter what access you have to maybe air support or whatnot. You don't have sufficient combat power to achieve what you want. You, you have to be able to actually convince the people that you're working with that your objectives align and that now you're going to go to achieve them. And one of the books I kind of picked up to read when I was uh, still in special forces was a book called the true believer by Eric Hoffer. Mm, that's great. And one of the things that he talked about was uh, th- that study of the group identity. And when somebody was, was again, fully ingrained in a particular group that one of the advantages is probably not the right word, but, but um, we'll, we'll use it. Cause I can't think of a better one off the top of my head. One of the advantages was this idea that you were no longer responsible for your individual actions. You were only responsible for responding in the way that the group required because the group was the thing that had the identity. Yeah. Um, the, the group was the thing that was the source of moral consensus. And so in so far as your actions were seen to be serving the needs of the group, they were moral. And so you could justify a- any sort of, you know, atrocity. And what was interesting was, like you said before, didn't it start off with, Oh, welcome to our club, go shoot this guy. Right? Like that was not how this started off. It would start off by essentially replacing any sense of individual identity or any sort of relationships or commitments to past history or institutions. And all of that was supplanted by the needs and the identity of the group. And so now if you went against the group, you didn't just risk being ostracized. You risked the loss of your identity. And and the, the last thing that you had left to remain some sort of grip on reality and, and the world. And so they could start to get you to do things and it started off fairly simple. But it, it always included some sort of violation of objective morality, social norms. And after a while, engaging in those activities brought you closer to the group farther away from the things that you might have used to believe in, or might used to have been used to regulate your behavior. Um, but an, but an interesting component of that was, is again, the stick in the carrot. You had the, if I do these things, I move up higher within the group. Mm-hmm. If I don't do these things, I can risk to be ostracized from the group. And that is a pretty scary spiral. When you think about it, especially when you have, uh, again, a, a group identity, which is, completely unmoored from any sort of objective reality, truth or morality. Um, So do you see, I've kind of rambled on here for a while. Let let me, let me add one more thing to that. Um, And again, I'm going to go back to Theodore Dalrymple because he had a quote that I remembered. And it was this idea that the more he studied communist propaganda, the more he realized that its intention was not to inform but to humiliate Mm -hmm. because if you could first get somebody to be silent in the face of obvious falsehoods and then over time, get them to repeat those falsehoods, you actually made them a party to evil and that over time it it had the effect of emasculating society. And And the concept was, is that a society of emasculated liars was easy to control. And then he concluded that, that statement by saying that, the more he studied political correctness, the more he realized that it operated the same way and for the same reasons. Mm -hmm. So I guess my, my question to you is, is as you look at some of the, um, you know, rituals or dogmas or statements of these groups that associate themselves with, again, that, that woke mindset, critical theory, oppressor versus oppressed. Do you see similarities with respect to how they recruit and operate and, and insulate themselves from criticism?
1: Yeah, um, not just similarities, d- direct analogs of it. It's almost like they're playing from the same playbook, um, because I, I think they are. And the the one of the fundamental premises of this kind of uh, mass scale and and also individual level coercive control comes back to con- conditioning in the sense of you know Pavlov's dogs or the work of B.F. Skinner, where if you if you reward the things you want more of by like giving someone dopamine, oxytocin, uh, um, acknowledgement, approval, love, acceptance. And if you punish them for the things you want less of, then h- humans aren't that much more complicated than a dog or a pigeon in, in that respect. Where if we know, Hey, every time I ask a certain question, uh, I get ostracized or humiliated in front of my friends, and then they're not going to be my friends anymore. Then I'm going to stop asking those kinds of questions, even though they're in here, even though I'm thinking them, and so that's the beginning of that uh, internalisation. It's where where we're in this environment where there are certain rules, there are certain things you can't say, there are certain things you're expected to say, and uh, and yeah, it's it soaks in through osmosis, and uh, and there are definite similarities because that's how influence works, that's how human beings work, and so effective influence for better or for worse, uh, follows a certain framework.
0: So what do you think? So again, if we, if we look at the conditions that we're seeing in the West, and I, and I know we've, we've kind of chatted before um, where we talk about like Douglas Murray and where he talks about kind of the war on the West um, and, and, and really speaks of it almost more of a, of a voluntary suicide rather mm. than some sort of you know, foreign invasion, right? It's, yeah. it's this idea, this loss of confidence. The way I've described it before is um, kind of a loss of identity. And, and so how do you think, because when, when I talk every once in a while, I'll talk to parents and they'll be like, I don't get it. We, we raised our, our kid in a, in a very loving home, you know, like all, all the markers that you would expect. Okay. Single parent home or abusive family or, you know, constantly moving and unable to set roots or no sort of consistency with respect to generalized beliefs or whatever it was. Okay. Take all those out. They were there. Right. They were there in some capacity, probably not executed perfectly, right? But they're in some capacity. And yet they're watching their kid come home from like their first year in college. And they're just shocked by how quick the transition takes place. Why do you think that transition or that, or or this ideology that they're becoming indoctrinated with, why do you think it has such appeal? Not just to the, the, the child or the, or the person that might have been, you know, have all the markers of, of susceptibility or vulnerability to that sort of idea. Why is it happening to kids that nobody would have, you know, looked on the outside of and anticipated that that was, that was a possibility.
1: There's a, uh, a principle in the world of hypnotherapy, which is pattern interrupts. Uh, you can look online. If you looked up handshake, interrupt hypnosis, then uh, you can, you can see it happen. And what, what happens is that when there is a script, a behavioral script, which is a, a sequence of behaviors that gets interrupted, we become uh, confused and it opens an influence window. So, so how this works is someone will come up to the, the other person. They put their hand out to shake their hands. This is an automated behavior. Now, we don't think about it. You've, shaked, you've shook so many hands in your life. It's, it's just an automatic thing. When that program gets interrupted, so you move the hand to one side or you pull it up in front of the person's face, it creates this this window of confusion where the brain's going, what's going on here? I don't know what's happening. And then that's the space where the, the street hypnotist or whoever's doing it will say, go to sleep, or will, will issue a command and the person will flop down on the floor. There's hundreds of these examples online. Th- that's, that's a very micro example of it. But the same is true in these larger... Uh, script interrupts. So as we go through the period of our life, a lot of it is uh, is running on autopilot. We've learned the motions, we're going through the motions, and, and we're, we're in this kind of rhythm of just what, what it is to be ourselves. When there's a big change, like um, moving house, changing career, um, getting married or getting divorced, uh, going to a new college, um, uh, bereavement, things, th- those kinds of large uh, life changes, that creates this, uh, this similar effect of there being confusion. And when the mind's confused and it's looking for answers, then it, it will accept the, the most readily available one, even if it's not an objectively good one. It's, just, it's, it's better than confusion. If I can have certainty, gotcha. then that's, that's preferable to being confused, because I don't know how to live in confusion. Most, most people don't. Uh, so when someone's going out of their stable, loving home environment... And now they're in this chaotic world on the outside and and it's confusing and people are judging you and people are screaming over here and there's all this stuff you 've never been subjected to before, that there 's so much confusion and you have no uh, no real lifeline, and you, you're immersed in that environment um i don 't think it's surprising at all, and, and one of the things that's one of the things that 's common in people who leave the military the 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 assumption is that well if you if you're in the military, you you must be super disciplined, and when you leave, you will still be super disciplined. And for some people, that is true. But for some people, they leave the military, and their life you know they're, they're getting up late, they're not exercising, their health's going, their finances are out of order, and yet they were model soldiers while they were in. And that's the difference between obedience and discipline. And when we talk about the internalized mechanism, when someone's in a in a structured environment, but they they are just following orders. Then once you take them out of that environment when there isn't the external imposition of orders then they'll they'll drift and they'll do something else the discipline is where we've we've that's internalized a, that's a, it
0: that's a, that's an interesting point because i i know i've talked to parents before and one of the things i've said is that well when you're when your kids came to you with questions or when your kids you know challenged something that you believed or something that you had taught or or maybe challenged you on you know violating a principle you taught them what was your response and so, because if your response was to tell them, because I said so, then really all you taught them was a, was a rigid respect for authority. Yeah. And when you were no longer the authority, well then it's somebody else's rules applied and, and basically they did exactly what you taught them. Yeah. Um, so, so let's, let me ask this. So that, that makes, that makes a ton of sense, right? That, that idea of that idea of, uh, again, a moment of confusion, or or again something as, as significant as uprooting, leaving the house structure for which you understood the rules and and whatnot, and 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 again there's a, there's a certain rationality associated with if I find myself in a new environment where the rules are very different, then the 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 best way to be safe is to conform to the new order as quickly as possible, and and again in in some ways that's that's not an inappropriate mechanism we said before like if you're if you're standing in a in a in an open field and all of a sudden 20 people start running one direction, it, it kind of makes sense from a, a safety perspective, from a survival perspective to run that way as well. Uh, the, the difference is is I guess identifying when a, a response is uh, appropriate based off of the environment or the new knowledge that you're then presented with later versus when an environment is actually, um, you know, malicious, mm-hmm. uh, or when, when the, when the desire, uh, when, when the desired desired conformity, um, doesn't have your best interest in mind, but it essentially has something else. So let me ask you this. Cause you, you talk a little bit about the whole idea of how do you strengthen the immune system, right? Mm-hmm. How, how do you, how do you strengthen people to kind of understand? So let's just say we can, we can certainly forgive someone in a moment where if you're, if you're in, um, If you, if you're out and again, out in a city, out in a square, and then all of a sudden everyone starts running in one direction. So yeah, you, you naturally start running there, but at some point maybe you identify that, okay, there's something wrong with this, Mm. right? Or you find yourself in a group or you find yourself in a relationship or whatever it is. And initially the, you know, you can be forgiven for not seeing that the signs were, were bad. Maybe there was nothing horribly unreasonable or, or whatnot. How do you strengthen the immune system, as, as you kind of refer to it, from being able to say, okay, this was a normal response at this point, but now I've identified things that are, are wrong or incorrect or harmful or corrosive, whatever it is, and I'm going to have the will to either ask the appropriate questions to determine whether or not there's, there's ill intent or to actually just walk away? Like How do, how do, you, do, how do you propose developing those?
1: Yeah, I, I refer to it as self-authorship. And so that agentic state that I keep referring back to, we don't get to opt out of having that as, as human beings. We need there to be some kind of authority that we're answering to. And that's a really unpopular thing to say, especially in the modern world. But we, we, we automatically have that. The folk like Jordan Peterson talk about how you, you don't get to opt out of being religious it's just a question of what's at the top of your totem pole in particular yeah. who's god or, yeah. right it's, 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 it's there's a god-shaped hole in your life and it's there's something that's going to fill it and uh, whether that's government or some you know, pleasure or or anything else that there is something that will be the sun in your own personal solar system you don't get to opt out of that and uh, and so that's where this sense of the the agentic shift and that. Uh, following of orders comes from. So, so when I'm speaking with people, a um a, a vital piece of gaining that agency again is where you're directing that uh, acquiescence, that desire to, uh, to to act in a certain way, and you, you're taking it back from these uh, things, people, groups on the outside that maybe aren't worthy of it, and you're directing it towards the. The, the, the greatest good of your future self. Um, there's, the, the waters get cloudy when you encourage people to start going down a religious path just because, large, especially large religions, they have humans involved in them. And so it's very easy for that to also get into a kind of golden calf and sort of Pharisees situation. So my place where I encourage people to go is if you can just learn to act in your rational best interests in a way that's also not uh, uh, exploiting or taking advantage of other people that's a good starting point so so beginning to recognize where where your instincts are saying hey this isn't right or something's amiss here and then gradually clawing back that um, that ground that you may have lost Um, it's not a solitary Game. it it can be and in the modern age we can be very isolated but having the right people around us and having the uh the the correct influences and the correct kind of non-isolated tribe but just a a a more open and flowing sense of community around you like you you talk about intentional communities that's one of the solutions to this so that then if you go a little off course this way then coming back into this realm of you know what's actually healthy for you uh, makes sense and and a great thing to to bear in mind is something that's become very unpopular recently and that is the idea that we actually do have enemies uh with with modern thinking and with the kind of new age thinking this idea of everything is love everything is oneness and like non duality and all that kind of stuff and you know if some if someone's doing something i don't like is it you know the problem is within me and all of these uh doctrines which have been um you know made sacrosanct they, uh, they they just don't stack up in the practicalities of life when you realize that look if someone wants if someone requires you to hate yourself they are your enemy so what do you do when you have an enemy you figure out what they want you to do and you go and do the opposite so if they want you to be lonely they want you to be uh unhealthy unhappy they want you to uh, neglect your long term good and go for sort of hedonistic short term uh, pleasures and just short term uh, instant gratification. They want you to go down a certain point, which then turns you into a minister of their nihilistic religion. Um, do the opposite, whatever, the, and your opposite might look different yeah. to mine. But but when when you realize that hey, so this person, this group, this whatever animating spirit that's steering this ideology. Is actually is, is is angling for my death. Is angling for my destruction, and uh, I I have the right to opt out of that if I choose to.
0: I, I thought I thought Jordan Peterson once said something I thought was pretty interesting in that, and he said he was basically talking about here who you shared good news with and who you took criticism from. And he mm. said, one of the questions that you should ask is, does this person actually want what's best for you? Yeah. And, and if the answer is no, then you should probably be careful both about good news and bad news. Yeah. Um, now I will say one thing that kind of begs the question, right? Is a, apart from an objective moral framework, it, it's the, how do you know what is best? Mm. And one of the, one of the reasons why I am, um, you know, a very dedicated christian is is in part because i believe that it it does do an excellent job of of providing and again i don't mean this in a utilitarian sense because i yeah. believe it's true i believe it's objectively true but that concept of objective truth and objective morality combined with this idea that yes there is a god and that god does set what the moral rules are and that god did put you know, the, the universe in order. And that's why you can understand is because of, of created order by the same token, he's also allowed you a degree of agency. And, and so there's this idea that it's, it's not this cult like devotion where I I have to do X, Y, and Z because I've been programmed or I'm attempting to be programmed to do these things. It's because this is reality. And I've, and, and I, and we're, we've been provided with a mind where we can now understand that, Hey, when I engage in certain activities, you know, theft, you know, abuse, murder, when it, there's negative aspects to this. When I engage in, in in other activities, you know, uh kindness, faithfulness, mercy, grace, love, there's there's pot of positive manifestations. And and oh, by the way, bad people will try to use the positive traits in an inappropriate manner in order to pervert them mm-hmm. in order to achieve certain you know, nefarious or malicious end states. And so let me, and it's one of the reasons why I say that um, one of the, I think one of the most valuable practical things that my faith has always afforded me is that when bad things have happened in my life, whether it was um, you know, not, not necessarily growing up in an ideal family situation, you, know, you know, divorce and things of that nature, when it was going to war and seeing some of the things that happened there, mm. no matter how bad things got – and this is also very important – no matter how good things got mm. – My identity was always secure. My identity was always secure. It wasn't dependent on how good things were or how bad things were. Um, I I felt like, well, no, I I know I have an identity in Christ, which provides continuity uh, regardless of the circumstances. I I don't question my meaning. I don't question my value. I don't question my purpose. I don't do any of that. And, And so when there is a confusing situation, yeah, it, it never, it never causes me to question the most fundamental aspects of my being. And, and what I've found is that, you know, in a, in a healthy marriage where someone also shares the, the worldview when it comes to raising children and creating that I, I've now seen in my own children, when they go into environments where they're surrounded by people that don't agree with them, they may respond in different ways based off of how to, you know, effectively socially navigate those, those arenas. But, but never once have I seen a situation where they were so shook to their being that they, oh, I don't know who I am. I don't know what gender I am. I don't know mm-hmm. what I really believe about the world. And there, there was this sense of, of peace, um, in the fundamentals, which provided an immunity. And, and again, I, I don't mean that to say, um, like just slavish obedience to dogma. No. Right Because it wasn't this idea of believe this because I've told you this, and because there's benefits to believe in it. it was like, no, we're going to discuss truth, and we're going to critically analyze what we see around us in order to feel confident in the truth that we've we've arrived at, But what do you say to the person that um you know maybe again they're they're past the point of they weren't they were not properly immunized right before they went into the environment, right it happened it is taken a certain degree of of control and you've talked a little bit about getting someone to understand that they do have some sort of of degree of agency or, or whatnot, but, but specifically part of your discipline, which I I find interesting and I don't know enough about to, to really have a firm belief in it. But when you talk about the idea of hypnotherapy, Mm, yeah, Right, to, to some people that maybe have experience, they're like, Yeah, that makes perfect sense. For other people, it's like this is this is like magic. Witch, right? like this say, is this yeah. is some sort of straight yeah, some sort of strange sorcery, right? Like if you weigh the same as a duck, we're burning you, right? Yeah. So what is what is the Monty Python reference there? Right? Uh, so appreciate what what it explain to me how that factors in toward helping someone that has become subject to an abusive organization or relationship. How does that factor into helping them? be able to, whatever it is, reset, get, gather different perspective. You know, what, what, what does it do? How does yeah. it work?
1: Yeah. So to demystify it a little bit, most of the uh, misunderstandings that we have culturally about things like hypnotherapy come from the fact that the only education we get about it is from either uh, Hollywood where there's generally a british person with like a monocle and a goatee and they're waving a, <laughs> you know, a pocket watch there's that side of it um or there's you know some you know preacher in a church saying oh it's the work of the devil and you're letting demons into your brain and all this kind of woo woo stuff and uh, it's just not the case uh, there's like a two and a half hour Huberman lab uh, episode where he's talking with, uh, I think it's David Spiegel about the science behind hypnosis and all of the, like the the brain scans and the tests that that show the effectiveness of it. But just a a short explanation is that, uh, hypnotherapy is the, the art and science of working with your unconscious mind as opposed to the conscious mind. Um, there are so many, uh, Problems that we know the solution to, like, every smoker knows that they shouldn't be smoking. So, so consciously knowing how to do better, it wasn't enough to change them. By like proof positive, there's something going on in the subconscious that's, that's steering them to act a certain way. So when you create change on that subconscious level, then it's just far easier, far more impactful, and uh, it's, it's far more lasting as far as uh, how how intense change can go. Um, How your unconscious mind works is that it it automates behaviors that you practice. So there are things that you can do now, say uh, writing your name or reading or telling the time that, or tying shoelaces. Once upon a time, that was difficult. Once upon a time, it it was impossible, but you learned it and you practiced it and it went through these kind of clumsy phases until it became automated. And now you can do it without thinking. Driving is another great example. You can be driving along and y- your mind is somewhere else. You think about conversations or something coming up. You've not thought about traffic or, or uh, you know, turnings or navigation. It was some other part of your mind was taking care of that. And that's the subconscious mind, which I would say your unconscious mind, and I use the phrases sub and unconscious interchangeably. It doesn't care what you want. It plays very pays very close attention to what you practice, so anything you rehearse again and again and again gets ingrained until it's muscle memory. You know this from from the military training. Uh, yeah. If you're in a firefight or a situation like that, you're not analyzing, you're not rat- rationally like mapping things out as if you're creating a flow chart. It's, it's instinct at this point. But you know, back in the day when you're a kid in the you know, running around the woods with a with a stick or something like th- those instincts weren't there. So, so we learn things that are rehearsed over a long period of time, and when when you consider that thoughts and beliefs are also things that we rehearse. You know, someone who grows up being told that they're unworthy, or that kids should be seen and not heard, or that um, you know you you have to be nice, you have to be polite. Well, a nice and polite person. Uh, isn't kind of obnoxious and uh, often uh, is perceived as not setting strong boundaries or people who set strong boundaries are seen as kind of rude and boorish. And so these are the little programs that can get um, sort of baked into our unconscious minds as you go throughout life. And the, the, the decisions to take on those beliefs and those identity paradigms, they can be well, the decision is always coming from a place of trying to take care of your greatest good because that's what your mind's designed to do. It's designed to try and keep you alive. Uh, but the things that used to be appropriate for you don't stay uh, appropriate for the, your entire life. And where we, where we come a cropper of that is that when you're living as a 20, 30, 40-year-old person but running the childhood patterns of uh, be seen but not heard, or you know you have to be polite, or you know go and be friendly to that person, even though you don't want to be friendly to them. So so hypnotherapy is is a way of helping people to interact with their unconscious mind. And the way I do it is different to how I've seen other people do it, because I, I'm very conscious of empowering people where you don't create that dependency. Uh, how a lot of therapists and coaches and hypnotherapists work is, I describe it as kind of a taxi driver model where you need to get from A to B, so you call the cab and they take you there. And that's great. Uh, But if you need to get anywhere else, you need to call another cab or walk, which will take forever. Uh, The way I like to approach things is more like a driving instructor model where I'll say, look, here's how your mind works. Here are the exercises you can do. And so as well as making the journey, you're also gaining the skills and the abilities to to go where you need to go afterwards so in internalizing the mechanisms of empowerment rather than um uh you know con- contrition and uh, obedience to people who aren't worthy that's that's a, a fundamental theme and that's that's also different to the propaganda we see on um you know hollywood where it's as if it's a battle of wills it's really not that it's about can you can you train yourself to have different uh, mental and behavioral habits that actually work for you rather than against you. Uh, and so that's, that's been the theme. So, Sorry, go ahead.
0: No, no, that that's, it's fascinating. My, my, the first time I remember ever hearing anybody, uh, discuss like a process of hypnotherapy was actually my father talking to me about it as a homicide detective. Mm. And it was, it was, it was a, a tool that it wasn't used often, but, um, he he remembered a, a a time where someone basically walked through it walked through a process of someone trying to remember details mm-hmm. and you know and, and again it it wasn't it wasn't the you know kind of the voodoo version that we we get on on t v sometimes or or whatnot it it was just this idea of creating a creating a situation of of like kind of comfort relaxation and then walking someone through a process of and, and and again, I'm I'm not going to be using the appropriate terminology. I'm just going to convey it the way it was conveyed to me. It was this idea of slowing everything down to a point where instead of saying, "I left the house and I walked to the car," it was like, "Okay, you you didn't just leave the house. You opened the door, and then when you closed the door and you looked up, you know, what did you smell? What did you hear? What did you see?" And and in that case, it was almost like recreating something that was there in the mind, but it was about having to go in and and find it. Yeah. Not because they hadn't actually experienced it or seen it or heard it or smelt it because we, we experience all of those things in, mm-hmm. in our activities, but we, I mean, for lack of a better term, right? It's not part of the random access memory, right? It's not part of the Ram because it's not relevant necessarily at that point. It still happened. It's still logged away somewhere, but because it wasn't relevant beyond what you needed to get from the door to your car to drive away, you, you don't, I mean, you, you kind of throw it away, right? Yeah. Um, And, and, and what this person was doing was helping them go back and basically go into the trash bin, if you will, and say, okay, this happened and your brain did store it. How do, how do we go about the process of finding it and recreating conditions within your mind to where you, you, you're now back in the time and the place. And so now you can access things. And one of the things my father found fascinating was, was little things like a, a license plate. Yeah. You see license plates all the time, you know, driving by and like, you your brain saw it and it's stored somewhere right yeah. that image that picture is stored somewhere but you don't you don't know um and he had someone you know take him through the process of you know going down and he, and he created such he created such a um an environment to where when he looked down and he saw the license plate all of a sudden it was like right there because now all of a sudden that information was incredibly relevant mm. to what they were talking about in the time and and recreating the so is is that is that an accurate representation um, of what's going on? And would that be more of like what you described as the the taxi cab model versus the, you know, the the student driver model or, or whatnot?
1: Yeah. So so that's a very specific law enforcement application of it. That um, that that's the right way to do it in, in that particular case where you're trying to retrieve a specific memory. I I, I wouldn't change change anything about that. But there's a great line in uh, 1984, among the thousands of other great lines that George Orwell wrote there, about how um, the person who controls the past controls the future, and the person who controls the present controls the past. So one of the um, biggest factors in how people will act and uh, make their decisions is how they perceive themselves. And a lot of how they perceive themselves is is how they relate to their own past. That's, that's part of why the... Um, the self-authoring suite that Jordan Peterson and others put together is, is very powerful as a therapeutic tool because it, it helps you to get clear on your own personal storyline of, of the various chapters in your life and how you've ended up where you are today. Just having clarity there is uh, is very powerful. So so one of the things that's very uh, common practice in, in the way I work with people is by being able to say, look, there are these moments along the timeline of your life where there was a fork in the road and a certain decision was made or a certain belief was adopted or a habit was formed. And so when you can mentally go back, just m- much like the um, the person you described did, when you're able to go back and change your relationship to that information, you know, maybe your dad being short-tempered with you when he got home from work wasn't because you're worthless and deserve to be mistreated. Maybe it just meant that he was having a bad day and he didn't regulate himself right. And it means nothing about you at all. But when, when you go back into the unconscious mind and you, and you change those, um, those decision points along the path, that even though you're not changing objective history, you're changing your subjective experience of it. And so then that enables sure. you to then be in a different vantage point to make new decisions in the present. So, so that, that was one yeah, that- process, Yeah.
0: So that, that, I mean, that sounds, so, so when you put it that way, it, it both makes perfect sense and it just sounds too easy. Right? Like, so, so here's my, here's my question. When you do, let's say you are dealing with somebody that, uh, again, um, long uh, bouts with, with trauma yeah. or, 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 things of that nature that fundamentally uh that that really change them in a formative way with respect to their, how they perceived reality, how they perceived events and then how it affected their, their future behavior. Yeah. So if you're going back and you're trying to help someone unpack that, right? Because again, from a law enforcement perspective, they've also had problems with people essentially, you know, again, not remembering stuff that actually happened, but almost manipulating and conjuring up memories that maybe did not exist for, you know, the, the, you know, prosecution or or things of that nature. So how do you, how, what is the ethical way to do what you're describing where you're helping someone understand an event and then maybe understanding it from a a more accurate, um, or productive perspective? Like what's the ethical way to do that?
1: Yeah, there, there are procedures and there are, um, Safeties that you put in place in how you approach it, so that you're not re-traumatizing people. Um, one of the most fascinating videos online. I'm giving everyone a really long watch list if they <laughs> if they actually follow this. Again. <laughs> but uh, it's it's a, eerily interesting in, in a kind of dark way. There's there's a video online of um, veterans veterans talking about the first time they killed someone. And uh, there's, you know, a group of guys um, from, from various wars over the past 50 years, and they're all describing basically the same thing, a slightly different settings, but, but it's essentially the same experience. And some of them are, you know, they've got their lives together, they're heads to their, able to talk in a very clear and rational way. And uh, some of them, one in particular, is clearly still there. He was from Vietnam, so even though it was like, you know, 50 years or so in the past, it still felt as if it was happening now. And you can actually see and hear the difference in how these, uh, the the different people process it. The people who processed it in a a way where they were able to move on, they described it uh, third person and past tense. And they were, uh, you could see them like visually painting the experience out here. So I don't know how good the camera angle is. There was like, we, uh, we went through the door, and I looked over to my right-hand side, and there was a guy coming through that corridor there. So it's, it's all out here, past tense, third person. The guy who was uh, clearly still traumatized was saying, present tense, first person. I walk through the door, and I look to the right, and I can see this guy coming down the corridor. And so i'm pulling my trigger and, and he's describing it in that way where by bringing the memory back to life like that every time he thinks about it he's re-traumatizing it and just digging that great that uh, that groove into his brain even deeper so th- that's that's a pretty weird thing to to see but when you ch- when you change that perspective into the the third person past tense when you when you actually file it in a different way that alone is is a fraction of what we would actually do to help someone but that alone changes your relationship to the data it's the same data but instead of it feeling so close and so so big and overwhelming it's shrunk down it's over there it's uh, sort of objectified um that's one example of the kinds of safeties that you put in place cognitively to help people to sort through information where they're kind of insulated from it and that there are many more things besides but yeah you you don't want to be re-traumatizing people you don't want to be re-traumatizing yourself uh, we want to be able to use the past to gather resources and learn lessons
0: okay now that makes sense so let let's um so let's ask this, It's kind of like a, a it's kind of like a, a summary um what would you what would you advise for someone who, I mean, we're looking around the world right now. We understand that there's, you know, again, whether we want to call it the woke mind virus or whatever else is going on. We, we, we know that, um, there's, there's very much competing ideologies and, and we're seeing a lot of things happen very, very quickly. If you were going to give someone advice for how to, um, you know, we'll say immunize themselves. They, they haven't, they haven't, they haven't bought off on it, but they're, they're going into difficult environments or they're going into places where they're, they're going to feel very isolated with respect to their beliefs and whatnot. How, how would you, how would you tell someone to basically, um, you know, mentally, emotionally, you know, strengthen themselves for, for that endeavor?
1: Yeah. Well, I would say most people watching this are already on the right track because they're interested in these kinds of things. You're, you're taking a proactive interest in, in this. And the, uh, the, the difficulty can come when we're in an environment surrounded by strangers and we don't quite have a way to um, not even defend our beliefs, but to, to, to have to explain things or to, uh, to operate from a worldview that used to feel self-evident to us. And when you 're around people who just cannot be convinced, like you said at the outset Nick uh, these people they can 't be reasoned with anything you say they 're going to start shrieking at you so in in that kind of an environment, even though you are confident you're right going into it it can be it can be really frustrating, and also for the people for the people watching who maybe have people that you care about who are um subjected to these things and that 's probably more common in the um the audience here—it's like you're—you're you're not particularly likely to drift into these ideological structures yourself, but maybe you're worried for your kids or for you know friends or or other people, and uh, and so the the question of how we can conduct ourselves uh, in a way that's helpful, like you said, to to kind of steer people away from things that are actually going to hurt them, um, and I, I would refer to this phrase from marketing, which is that it's the is the wizard not the wand. Um, we might have a worthy message, and we might have a worthy cause, but we ourselves have to be worthy of it in order for it to really land and And f- to help that make sense i'll I'll use you as another example of that, it's okay, Nick. Um, if we take the idea of um you know traditional family values, the nuclear family, monogamous relationships, loyalty, fidelity, that that bunch of um you know beliefs, let's say. How a lot of people experience um, uh, being taught that is from to to speak very uncharitably is from some like middle aged or older preacher guy. is quite unattractive, quite like beta male, quite weak, fat, uh, not particularly imposing. Has a wife who looks like she hasn't cracked a smile in twenty years, and that's the guy who's coming and going to say, "Yeah, no, you have to, you have to flee from temptation," and so for. For a young guy hearing that, would be like, what do you know about fleeing from temptation? Temptation flees from you. <laughs> and, you're, <laughs> and, and you're coming to me playing the God card, saying God wants me to not do something that you would do, probably, if you had the chance to, which you don't. Interesting. And, and rightly or wrongly, that's the, the internal dialogue or the feeling, that, that kind of reactance to it. It's like, you, you've got no right to talk to me about this? What, what, why would I follow your example? And uh, that's, that's built into us, right? Contrast that with when, you know, that, the episode you did with John Lovell. Great, great episode. It's an awesome conversation. I've played it so many times. And you've got you two guys, you know, good-looking guys, intelligent. You've got your fantastic beards. You've, like, got more guns <laughs> than the average Brit has teeth you know, this is like real, <laughs> like masculine guys who could have your ha- harem of women as much as you like and be warlords somewhere taking over. But then when, when you guys are saying, yeah, nuclear family, awesome, monogamous relationship, you know, scint- scintillating, scintillating uh, marriage with, and you, you refer to your wives, not as wives most of the time, you say brides, which shows again, where, where your head's at. And so, so when, when you hear that, it's like, oh, maybe these guys are saying something worth listening to because they actually know what they're talking about. All of that to say that when it comes to this, if, if, we're, if we're saying that a certain ideology is not right or well, that it's harmful, but we don't have an alternative to propose, or if we do have it, we aren't a living example of how good it is, it doesn't matter how Worthy your messages. It doesn't matter how perfect your words are; the the example you set will speak far louder. So, as as much as any of the rational arguments we can make, if if someone looks at you and doesn't feel like you're the kind of person they want to be more like, then anything you say will fall on deaf ears.
0: No, oh, that's um, yeah. No, that, ma- that makes a lot of it makes a lot of sense. Um, well look i I, I got to thank you for all the time you've given us. Um, this has been a truly fascinating conversation i mean is is there thank you Is there anything that we, you would like to touch on that we haven't that we haven't hit on so far I think it's really important to 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 recognize
1: that I'm using the word important again. You need to remember that you actually do matter. I think that's one of the fundamental uh, beliefs that, without, it's, it's more of an axiom than a belief. Other things hinge on it essentially, and uh, and a large part of the the problems we see in the world isn't that there are problems there. It's that our, our psyches and our our cultural psyches haven't had the immune system to fight it off. And a lot of that comes from this sort of passivity and this apathy. Um, I was thinking how the the pandemic that could kill us all is is not COVID or anything like that. It's apathy. And it's uh, hopelessness and it's isolation. Those are the things that will weaken us individually and collectively. And, uh, and so just as a starting point to, to recognize that, uh, you and me and and everyone listening have a very important role to play, and uh, and it does fall to us. And like no one's coming to save us. You, if if you see the things going wrong in the world, just sitting there in an armchair going, "Oh gosh, isn't the world a state? What a shame!" and then carrying on the same way, that's that's not enough. Uh, we have to actually take steps to address this and the the place we have to start is within ourselves yes and uh, and rooting out the the parts of our own nature that are compatible with manipulation and the parts of ourselves that are compatible with surrender and capitulation uh, we have that's the first frontier we have to fight on yes but then it extends outward it goes into your family and how you relate to people and socrates said about how our, we should focus our energies not on destroying the old, but on building the new. The great news about this postmodern ideological virus is that it's, it's, it's self-immolating. It cannot last. Everything is nothing, nothing like this kind of nihilistic, no, you know, no such thing as objective truth. Um, you, know, you you put all of these people on an Island and they've died out within to you know to, within fifty or a hundred years for sure it's it's it 's an unsustainable thing so so it 's a self solving problem in some ways and and that 's a kind of horrible thing to say. but if you just leave that part of the world and that part of humanity to to do what it wants to do without you going and and um you know convincing anyone the the problem of that that structure will solve itself because people will either die as a result of it or they will realize how bogus it is and then they'll make their way to something a bit more reasonable so that side of things i'm not too worried about the things where it's more of an an overt um faith-based modern day colonialization and invasion thing that's going on which is overtly stated and um and, and very intentional the advantage that has is exactly what you described earlier, Nick, which is that it's rooted in this devout faith and this, uh, clear vision for the future, even though it's a vision that to, to me and to us, I think is, is something truly terrifying and not reflecting human rights or what we want for our children and grandchildren. Uh, that clarity of vision and that unity of purpose, uh, that creates power for better or for worse. So we need to take a leaf out of their book and start to create that and find that for ourselves and realizing that it's, like I say, it's important. So um, I grew up in a house where my stepdad collected uh, military from World War I and World War Two. So surrounded by maps, helmets, medals, all this great stuff. Loved the, um, uh, the Band of Brothers series, all of that. So I was surrounded by our next door neighbor, Doug, is a – you know, a very old chap, he was in World War II and he uh, was actually in Africa fighting against Rommel. So this this history felt very present for me growing up. So so while I was growing up, there was this almost a yearning where it was like, look, 80 years ago, the enemy was very clear. It's the, they were flying over the channel, dropping bombs on us. And if you wanted to help your family and your country and the world, really, when you realized what, what was being spread... Um, you picked up a gun and you walked towards the explosions, or you walk, you know you, you walked that way and you went and um you know tried to solve some problems over there. But in, in the modern world, I think we have this and young men especially, we have that same urge within us. there's that same drive to go and slay the biggest dragon you can find, and yet it 's not neatly labeled up with red flags and swastikas anymore. Is far more insidious, but it's, it's still there. And once you realize that, it's actually, to me, I experienced it as, as calm and excitement. It's like, oh, there you are. There's something important for me to throw myself out. And so, where before I was very focused for a while on this, you know, religious trauma and, you know, cult indoctrination, because th- that was the biggest dragon I could find at the time, by realizing that, that the scope is much larger now to me, that's exciting. That wakes me up early in the morning because I feel like there's something I can bring to the fight to actually contribute. And uh, yeah, that's enlivening, that's emboldening. So if you can find what that is for yourself, then that that lights the fire within you, that lights the fire under you, which makes you hard to conquer. I'll, I'll end on this thought. I know I said that one, but I'll end on this. You think of all the things that we used to fight for as humanity, the things that would make you strive, not necessarily combat, but that that striving fighting, but also including combat and and physical fighting. You You would fight for yourself, you'd fight for your family, you'd fight for your community, you'd fight for your nation, and you'd fight for your God. All of those things have been undermined and maligned and attacked by these ideologies that are taking over the world. So no wonder people are giving up. So if you can find your way to, to re-energize those embers inside of you, give them space to become a fire again, then you you can actually be a part of something very um, meaningful. This, this is the great war of our lifetime. And, uh, and to me, that's really exciting. And, uh, and when you have that excitement to endure and to keep going forward, then you're very hard to conquer.
0: Yeah. There's no better way to end this. <laughs> that was, that, that was outstanding. Um, really appreciate you, you taking the time, appreciate your insight, sharing your experience and, um, and some of your expertise on this. Um, I, and I think that's very encouraging. Honestly, I, I can't think of a better way to, to wrap up what, what I think was one of the most interesting discussions I've had in, in a, in a, long time, um, okay. on this topic. So, you know, Jonum, thank you very much for again, taking the time to be with us here and, uh, for the work that you do and definitely want to, want to keep in touch. I think there's a lot of topics that come up nowadays where it would be very interesting to get, um, uh, to be able to get your perspective. And so, yeah. thank you. um, once again, thank you. And, and where, where can people, where can people either find out more or follow you on social media? What where, where would be a good place for people to do that? Yeah, thank you. Um,
1: so my website is the institute, And I've actually put together a, a survey, which is an anonymous survey, there's no data collection. But I, I want to hear and get input from as, as many people as I can, who actually care about these things like we do, to be able to see, well, what's the lay of the land? What's important to people? What are we needing and wanting? And what questions do we need answering? If you'd be open to to sharing that, I'd be happy to share the answers with you as well. But uh, I think when we realize how many voices there are, and how many like minds there are, that we're actually not alone, and we can actually pull together, uh, that will also really further the cause. So I'll be sharing things on the fractaleffect.institute, resources, training, articles about uh, behavior psychology, and especially focusing on the the, the practical aspects of what we can do about it. Not just understanding the problems, but knowing how to create solutions on the self level, on the team level of family and friends, and on the community level as well.
0: That's excellent well, we'll, we'll definitely put the link for that in the, in the show notes for this so Jonah once again thank you very much and thank you very much to our, our audience for for watching uh, please consider joining our community that's actually one of the areas where uh, we found Jonam <laughs> and we were able to uh, he, he actually had some some excellent insight we were looking for ideas on future episodes and um, you know he listed he listed some of the topics we talked about here today and we said gosh this is a, this is a guy we should actually get on and, and talk to about it so once 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 again, thank you very much for spending the time. Thank you all for watching and we will see you next episode.